Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. There's something wrong in the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Secret Podcast with Sixth Sense Media and Service of Change. It's the show that challenges reality, questions at which we've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change. We make the paranormal feel quite normal and the supernatural quite natural, and that's exactly what we aim to do. On yet again this episode of The Seeker Podcast, I have my new friend, Mark Sirto of The Triad Mind. He was a good friend of Bob Monroe and helped in designing some of the sound engineering equipment that went into the Monroe Institute and the famous hemisync technology that many of us have read about in Bob Monroe's books. Great discussion with Mark tonight. You are not going to want to miss what he shares, a wealth of wisdom, a wealth of knowledge for those of us that are trying to better understand our own internal voices, what's going on with meditation, out-of-body states. We touch on a lot of it, my friends. You're going to want to hear what he has to say. It was a wonderful, wonderful discussion that I had with him. I'll get to that in just a few moments. I have some things in the news that I want to cover. Let me. It seems like over the last couple of days, things are just blowing up like crazy. You know, we have the uh, Hurricane Florence that's barreling its way. I'm recording right now. It's Thursday, September 13th. It's, it's due to make landfall over the Carolinas within the next couple of hours, they're saying. Right now it's 1030 in the evening. And, you know, I was thinking, I actually did a two-minute video I, I'm getting ready to throw up on the YouTube channel. But you know, if you're regular to the show, you know I've done a lot of coverage talking about remote viewing and uh, you know the history behind it and, and the potential of it. And I'm an advocate for it, and I think we need to be doing more of it. And the Farsight Institute's been doing what's known as the Time Cross Project, where uh, now they've recently shifted their focus, but what they were doing for about two years was predicting the major news events one month in advance, and they were getting pretty good results. They had three to four viewers predicting the major headlines of things that are happening throughout the entire world. And what I've been thinking ever since I've been following what they're doing at the Farsight Institute is imagine, imagine if every single town, county, state, district, whatever, had a team of remote viewers employed. And their job every month was to go out and predict what's going to happen in our town. That's significant, to look at the data out there. That doesn't mean that you have to you know, again, with remote viewing data, it's one piece to the puzzle with the greater, greater data that you have. Now, if every town or even every state had these types of teams, in a situation like this, we have a hurricane that's getting ready to come down. They're calling it the monster storm, predicting all this destruction and chaos. You can have viewers go in and do things like, let's assess the damage. Where are areas going to be hit the hardest? Now you know how to, you know, you can take that data and use it to prepare. You can dedicate certain resources there to reinforce areas. You can make sure people are not in those particular structures or areas or regions. If you have a, a high damage value, you can look at what are we looking at as far as impacts of loss of life, and, and you might be able to save some lives by using that data. So, uh, you know, when I see a storm like this, and it, it, oh, be afraid, there are tools, there are things that, that, you know, that we cover on this show regularly that are out there that we just need more people to do the work and take the time and learn to use these abilities that we have 
and, and we could really do something great with them. I, I'm optimistic about it. So uh, who knows? Maybe you, you know one of you out there is someone that's, that's going to start building that first team. I'd love to do something like that as well someday. So let's see where it where it takes us. Uh, you know, things going on in the news. I'm going to talk about a couple of them. The big one that's been blowing up everywhere, apparently in a place called, uh, is it Sunspot, New Mexico? Somewhere in New Mexico. Ray Davis and I, we're going to do an episode on this tonight. We're going to, we put it on hold for now, but apparently FBI did a raid on this solar observatory. And uh, the, the initial reports were Black Hawk helicopters came in and they shut down the observatory. They took all the scientists out. And they, they, I think this happened last Thursday. And they actually shut down the post office there as well. So speculations online are, are running rampant. Obviously, maybe the observatory saw some crazy solar flare that's heading our way. Well, uh, suspicious observer Ben Davidson is suspicious observers. He's been reporting on what's going on with the solar activity. Nothing like that. He hasn't seen anything that would fit what's going on with this, uh, with this happening here at this observatory. And people are saying, well, maybe it observed a UFO. And my brain goes crazy thinking about that because we've been covering what's been going on with Tom DeLong and uh, Louis Elizondo and the To the Stars Academy and Hal Putoff. Uh, and the recent disclosure events with uh, UFOs in the area. You guys know I've been tracking that. There's uh, several podcasts out there talking about that. Maybe they observed something, and maybe this fits nicely into that, uh, you know, that, that line of thinking or succession or release of information that we've been seeing here. They're slowly dismant- uh, disseminating information on it, and now, lo and behold, we have an actual sighting of something. Maybe that's it. But now I was listening to uh, Secure Team Had a Good Breakdown and then Leak Project. I only caught a, a, a brief bit of it on leak project but apparently he came across information from a remote viewing source mind you he said i'll have the links to it um that 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 had something to do with china using that facility to spy on white sands which is why they shut it down so right now the jury's out i know ray is uh working hard ray davis is out there doing a lot of digging and research and pulling pieces and resources together and uh, we're letting our imagination run wild a little bit, too, because it's fun to speculate what could it be, what is, what is happening over there at that observatory. So more to come on that story. I'll have some links in the show notes. You can read some of the articles that, that Ray and I have pulled on that as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and any information you have. Please get in touch uh, with me as well on that. I have a few stories in the news. I'm going to go through the news a little bit quicker tonight. Um, I will have all the links in the show notes at sixcentsmedia.net, and it will be in the secret newsletter in your inboxes that comes out every single Sunday. Quick commercial here. Go to sixcentsmedia.net slash I am human. You'll get my free ebook, I am human, and we are not who we think we are. And you'll get that e-newsletter every single Sunday with all the links we talk about and so much more. So check that out, sixcentsmedia.net slash I am human. All right, so this story here, I, you know I love covering the AI stuff and the telepathy stuff and everything under the sun about it. I need to go and do another episode of that probably in the next month or so. Uh, this story is going to be a piece of that, but I want to at least reference it so you can go ahead and read it. It's dated September 10th. It's from uh, unexplainedmysteries.com. DARPA develops telepathic drone control. Military scientists have created a brain interface that can enable a person to control drones with their mind. The impressively sophisticated system makes it possible for a pilot with an implant chip to send commands to the three remote operated aerial vehicles at the same time. Technology builds upon DARPA's previous research into telepathic 
control systems. As of today, signals from the brain can be used to command and control not just one aircraft, but three simultaneous types of aircraft, says Justin Sanchez of DARPA's Biological Technology Office. I will have the rest of this in the show notes. You can read it. The stuff is real. I know Elon Musk just released something. I don't have the article in front of me. Big announcement coming through Norlink. They're just about ready, I think, with some kind of brain-to-computer interface. Uh, you know, we've been struggling, or not struggling, we've been exploring the question, is this a good thing overall for humanity? Elon Musk's take on it is this is, this is our way to be, prevent ourselves from becoming obsolete as AI continues to develop. My worry is how is this going to impact human consciousness? I think that it's going to take us a level away from doing our inner work and trying to connect uh, with our higher selves, whatever you want to call it, explore our own consciousness. I think we're going to be creating another level of reality that takes us in a different direction. Maybe we're going to learn something about our own consciousness through that. That's absolutely possible. But I also worry about now who's in control once we link our minds to the cloud. Now we're weaponizing it, as you can see, connecting our brains to multiple drones that's, uh, that's concerning. Speaking of that, this comes to us from the Washington Post in my hometown of Philadelphia. Lab-grown brain bits open windows to the mind and a maze of ethical dilemmas. In Philadelphia, Zhu Yu Kwan uh, yanked an open incubator door at the University of Pennsylvania to reveal rows of cylindrical tubes swirling like shaken-up snow globes with strange and exotic flurry. The pale peppercorn-sized spheres were lab-grown globules of human brain tissue, or as Quan occasionally refers to them, mini brains. Paraphrasing here, but it's a controversial nickname, uh, and some, the scientists disapprove of it, is what the article talks about, um, because they don't want people to think that there's human minds that are out there that are feeling trapped in some form of experiment. Uh, but the article goes on. I'm going to skip around here. Uh, and it says here, today, organoids, which they refer to these mini-brains as, uh, that resemble different regions of the human brain are routinely spun up from stem cells in large batches of laboratories around the world. Researchers have refined their recipes since the technique was first described five years ago, but the process is surprisingly hands-off. After a few nudges from scientists, stem cells grow into spheres with about a million neurons through a naturally occurring uh, choreography that mirrors early brain development in the womb. At day 100, Quan's mini-brains resemble a portion of the prenatal brain in the second trimester of pregnancy. People are more worried about if they reach a certain level, if it's really like a human brain. We're not there. We're very far from there, says Hong Yun Sung, who leads the laboratory at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine, where Quan works. But the question people ask is, do they have consciousness? The biggest problem I have so far is, I think, as a field, we don't know what is consciousness, what is pain? Interesting segue. We're going to talk about that on, uh, we're going to explore some of that on this evening's discussion with Mark in a moment. But at the moment, many brains are far from anything approachable to uh, approachable moral personhood in a dish, and the technology may never come close, but the rapid pace of progress on organoids has led scientists and ethicists to call for a public ethical discussion that can move in tandem with the research. Disembodied brain, after all, is a long-standing trope of cultural fascination and even philosophy ranging from the serious metaphysical thought experiment called The Brain in a Vat to the screwball sci-fi comedy The Man with Two Brains in which Steve Martin finds himself falling in love with a charming woman's preserved brain. The article goes on to talk a little bit more about this, the ethical issues. 
ultimately they don't know. We don't know when consciousness enters the brain. We don't even know what consciousness is. So obviously there are some ethical questions that come up with this. My conspiracy brain, my tinfoil hat mind worries, well, this is what they're doing publicly. What happens behind closed doors in the deep recesses of the black vaults and the black projects are these brains being developed and used for nefarious purposes. I know that's a fear-invoking statement. I don't like to go there. But I think it's important for us to think about sometimes. Let's recognize those scary things and then ask ourselves, well, how can we prepare for that? What could we do if that scenario was real? We don't have to be afraid of it, but we should think about it sometimes because as these things are developing, we, we don't know. We've never been down this road before. So it is interesting as we see that uh, developing and expanding. Okay, my friends, I, I wanted to share those news stories. I, you know me, I could go on a tangent. I could do an hour on each story just because I like to talk. But I want to move into my guest tonight, Mark Sirto, again, of the Triad Mind. I'm going to bring him on in a second, and uh, you know, I want you to hear the discussion that we had this evening. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. So I'm not going to waste any more of our time, and I'm going to go ahead and bring Mark on. Okay, Seekers, I am here with my new friend, Mark Sirto. He has a wealth of knowledge and experience. I am so excited to talk to him. I'm just going to paraphrase some of his bio here coming from us at thetriadmind.com. Mark is the creator of The Triad Mind, over 30 years of experience with recording arts and sciences. Uh, he's been at it since 1977, studying meditation, uh, and he's gotten great insight into the workings of the mind and the nature of consciousness. He's a professional, professional musician and composer and has obtained a unique understanding of the power of music to affect consciousness. Uh, 1998, I'm sorry, 1988, he joined the lab team at the Monroe Institute where he received additional training from the Institute's founder, Robert Monroe, in the art of reverse engineering EEG readings into tangible binaural beat matrices to affect consciousness. Mark is going to share some of his experience with us tonight. We're going to see where the conversation takes us, how deep down the rabbit hole we can go. Mark, my friend, how are you this evening, sir? I'm having a terrific evening. You, Dennis? About the same. Like I said, I'm very excited uh, to talk with you. There's, I, I don't even know where to begin. Reading through your bio, reading through everything, uh, I've been thinking about this for the last two weeks as we've kind of been going back and forth. Um, you know, just talking about everything. So uh, why don't we start uh, at the beginning, if you want, just introduce us a little bit about, if you want to say a little bit about, you know, who you are and what your background is, and then we can kind of get into some of your experiences. Well, as you um, read in my bio, I began all of this with uh, a deep love for sound and music. I got involved in meditation pretty early on in my life. I guess I was about 15, 16 years old. And the reason that I got involved was not because I was looking for spiritual enlightenment or anything um, nebulous like that. It had more to do with the idea that I had uh, read something that if, if you put your mind, focus your mind on the task at hand in a way that only meditation can allow you, you can succeed at anything. And being that I wanted to be a professional musician and nobody was really out there teaching how to become one, I decided this was going to have to be a path of self-actualization. So I began to uh, learn meditation techniques that allowed me to focus and direct my mind and consciousness on achieving my goals. Um, 
that led me to becoming a professional musician, which I did for many years and still do to some degree. Um, but my real love came um, in the form of the recording art when I started to uh, spend time in recording studios and found that you know the, there was this magic happening that was a true art form that blended technology along uh, with art. And I really wanted to master that, so I uh, studied um, audio engineering and decided that's what the, the path that I would focus on mostly, in, in addition to playing music, um, that led me to uh, leave New York City, which is where I grew up, and I ended up moving to Charlottesville, Virginia, and that's where uh, one day Bob Monroe called me out of the clear blue, and our paths crossed, and we developed a friendship, and I really enjoyed working with him for all of those years because his interest in consciousness met my own. He was a musician. I was a musician. We had an awful lot in common and a good basis on which to build a friendship. Um, so that's where my professional path and my, uh, shall I say, my longing, my desire, my um, my uh, inherent uh, love of something that was innate within me came to full expression or began to become to come to full expression. Since uh, leaving the Institute, I spent 13 years there, uh, seven years along working with Bob until he passed in 1995. And then I continued to uh, more or less spearhead the, um, the organization's creative department for quite some time after that, another, say, six years. Um, under the guidance of his daughter, Lori. And then in 2001, I met my current wife and we fell in love and she was an Atlanta girl and it was time for me to move on. So I continued the work down here, uh, but in a very different form. I decided that, uh, as, as your listeners may well know from reading Bob's books, and I'm sure you know, um, his interests lay in mostly the out-of-body experiences and anomalous states of consciousness. Um, I take a more psycho-spiritual approach to consciousness and use it for the purpose of self-actualization with the dry of mind. Wow. What a journey. Uh, Again, I'm so um, taken by your experience here, and and it's neat how the synchronicities kind of, like you said, it merged your professional interests and your spiritual interests and everything kind of fell into place and you got to continue to develop both as, as you went through this journey. Um, now I noticed you've been sharing some stuff through, um, some of the social media sites, uh, talking about your relationship with Bob. Um, what was that like, you know, getting to meet him? Can you give us a sense of how that, how that developed with him? Well, you know, naturally, a lot of people who follow Bob's work and and have read his books have asked me questions along that line before. And the answer I tend to give, because it's the most authentic, is that, you know, we developed a friendship. So I got to know this man as a human being rather than as a New Age icon or a uh, guru or anything like that, because um, and Bob would issue those labels anyway. That's not who he was as a person. He was just, to quote him, he was just a guy who had unusual experiences, and he wanted to figure out why. He didn't want to be the only person out there doing this. So he more or less surrounded himself with people who have had also anomalous experiences 
or who were studying various disciplines within the arena of understanding what consciousness is and the hard problem of consciousness. So um, to encapsulate an answer to your question, I knew him as a, as a person. Uh, he was an innovator. He was uh, a, a lot of laps. We, we lapped an awful lot of time. Uh, we spent in the, in the lab together. Um, after his wife Nancy passed away, I'd say we got even closer because um, he was, you know, pretty much alone at that point. And there was so many similarities between our common interests that uh, we bonded on that level as well. But in addition to that, uh, he taught me an awful lot about the nature of being curious about going down the rabbit hole, to use a phrase that uh, you uh, used earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, he was he was never one to take um, answers at you know face value. He was always encouraging me to look a little bit deeper and to find out uh, you know what that truly meant for me. His one of his favorite things to answer participants and their numerous questions about his experiences, he would simply say, you know, these are my experiences. If you want to find out for yourself, you're going to have to go to, you know, Focus 15, for instance, which was uh, one of his uh, uh, levels of consciousness. He made a roadmap of consciousness that we can talk mm -hmm. about extensively. But he said, you know, go to 15 and, and take a left. You know, find out for yourself, basically. It's, right. it's the only way that it's ever really going to mean anything to you. So, you know, from that perspective, he was um, a mentor. He encouraged my curiosity. He encouraged me to not take things at face value with regards to the hard problem of consciousness, to... Uh, to, to look more deeply into what is truly going on. And that's advice that I took to heart very much so. And, you know, resonated with my own natural curiosity. Now, here's, a, I guess, a, a loaded question or a, a big question that you know, probably could take a long time to explain, but what's one of the greatest things you've learned through your studies of consciousness after meeting with, with Bob? Remain curious. <laughs> that, 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 that really is the, the largest thing, my biggest takeaway from being with Bob, in addition to you know the, um, the nature of our relationship and friendship we had, was uh, that there are so many different approaches to the hard problem of consciousness, so many scientific disciplines, spiritual disciplines, psychological uh, mm -hmm. disciplines that all purport to have a relatively definitive answer, even though those who are serious practitioners in all those fields would probably admit that we don't have all the answers. But there are so many indicators within this, these different fields that people get locked into their own belief structures based on their um, discipline and their understanding as to what consciousness is. And it's still an unanswered question. I mean, we can approach that question from a neurological perspective, uh, you know, from a spiritual perspective, psychological perspective, going down the line there. So for so, somebody... In, in, in sorry, that, stay curious. Uh, and I like that. Stay curious. You know, I'm always saying just keep asking questions because you're going to keep finding new questions and, and exploring more and more. Even if you think you know everything there is to know, start 
dissecting it and asking more questions about it. And it's amazing where that journey takes you. It is. And uh, it's, it keeps the spark of life alive. Absolutely. It's one of the most valuable things that you can hold on to because children are naturally curious. Um, they're more alive. They're more present. They're more engaged with things. They're, they're learning all the time. When we reach a certain point in our growth, we, we have to know all the answers because we have to go out and do life you know, on our own mm-hmm. uh, in the process of individuation. And you're supposed to know a few things by then. Right. But in the process of knowing, we tend to get uh, wrapped up in our belief structures and we get defensive about them. And uh, when they're challenged, we run into cognitive dissonance or just an outright refusal to learn anything new. And curiosity, in my opinion, is, is the thing that makes us all uniquely human and is ours, uh, per- perhaps our saving grace. It, it almost makes us feel childlike again. That, that's so hard to do sometimes to ask mm-hmm. those questions, to admit, I don't know what I thought I knew and what I thought I knew might not be correct or it might not be the only answer. And it's a right. tough it's a tough barrier to break through. So for those who might be new to, you know, the exploration of consciousness that are out there listening, how, what advice do you have for them if they want to get started, if they want to start exploring, they've got that itch, they've got that question, how, what, what's your best advice for getting started? Well, um, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but the first law of of exploration is be curious. <laughs> the second law of, of exploration is be open to possibility. Right. Uh, the third law of exploration is is do it. You know, mm-hmm. take the time and do it. I um, when people ask me what I do for a living, you know, my elevator statement is basically to say I teach meditation because that is predominantly the tool in which one can explore consciousness mm-hmm. and understand it. So uh, the first answer I usually get out of folks when I tell them that I teach meditation is, oh, I'm so fascinated with the idea of meditation, but I can't get my mind to be still. Mm-hmm. And I often just look at them and wonder who, who gave you the idea that you're supposed to have a still mind. Right. You know, I mean, it's, that certainly is an outcome and it's certainly a practice that can be used to try and attempt to still the mind. But really what's, what you're engaging in is creating an observer phenomenon of walking a step back from engaging in your thought process or your feeling process and noticing that you're having thoughts and you're having mm-hmm. feelings. And, you know, that's something that, as again, at a certain point in our lives, well, perhaps even in early childhood, we, uh, we, we don't really pay attention to the fact that we're having thoughts and having feelings. Mm-hmm. And that these thoughts and feelings are incredibly transient and they're of your own making. They're um, also, you know, I mean, we're going to have to talk about the levels of complexity of mind to truly get into this phase of a conversation about what thoughts and feelings are and where they originate from. But to be able to step back and to look at what it is you're doing. Just take a few moments every day to stop and just try to have no thought for a few moments. They'll pop in. Mm-hmm. They just That's the way the mind is going to work. Right. And rather than going down that trail and saying, oh, yes, I, we have to be at so-and-so's place in five minutes and I have to do this after that and then all the doing things that the mind gets involved with thinking, 
just be really present with the fact that you're actually having thoughts. And rather than getting involved and engaged in those thoughts, be present with them and say, say to yourself something along the lines of, I seem to be thinking that I need to be somewhere in five minutes, you know, name whatever thought you're having mm-hmm. and then just stop and say, that's nice. And then remind yourself to just have a, a, a beginner's mind again. In doing so, you're practicing, as I said before, the observer's self, which is the the very foundation of meditation. From that point on, you know, the sky's the limit. So that would be my first advice to anybody. I think that's great advice, you know, because I've spoken to a lot of people, too, and, and they said the same thing, you know, I can't quiet my mind. And it is more mm-hmm. taking, I like how you said, you're kind of taking a step back. And you're looking at, you know, as you're sitting there, you're, you're quiet. And for a minute, your mind might be quiet. And then you start thinking, what am I going to make for dinner? And if, when you can sit there and say, hey, I'm thinking about what I can make for dinner. I'm going to watch that thought. I'm going to push it away. And I'm just going to go back to whatever technique I was using to help me calm myself down again. Eventually, you can find those, those, um, the quietness, I think, that, that you were talking yeah. about. What ends up happening is that more space is created between one thought and the next thought. And the next thought, as the observer begins to hold, uh, begins to gain strength, then you have to start asking yourself a really large question. Who is it that's observing the thoughts? Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> if most people believe that they are their thoughts, they are their emotion, they're the progenitors of these things. But if you're able to step back and look at these things, then there's there that implies that there's a second party involved in the conversation here, in the dynamic. Yes, which makes wonder, makes me very curious. Who is that? And essentially, you're getting down to the essential self. You know, I've which had is just the being self. I've had moments where I I step back and I say, I don't know where that thought is coming from. That doesn't seem Good. like. It sounds like my internal voice, but that doesn't sound and feel like it's coming from where my other thoughts come from. Can right. have you ever experienced that? Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, I know exactly what you're talking about. So in the triad mind, which is the work that I'm doing since I've left the institute, I try to break down the concept of consciousness as having three different unique but interactive stages, one being the conscious mind which some people would refer to as the ego self, you know, the portion of ourselves that are aware and active and engaged in the world. What informs the conscious self is a very interesting dynamic from the science of uh, psychology. We get into the unconscious, and Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. I prefer to use terms because they became a little bit confused um, in terms of the unconscious being also indicative of subconscious you know, thoughts and feelings that were things that are suppressed or that we're not aware of information that resides and informs the conscious mind. Carl Jung went further and kind of came full circle and talked about it in terms of the unconscious as being uh, part of the collective soul of humanity, uh, the spiritus mundi, he called it the soul of mm-hmm. the world, which, you know, again, because of the, the one word uh, was used to depict two various states of mind, I, I basically stick with the idea of the conscious mind being a level of awareness, the subconscious mind being a, a process that, that of content 
that we have not fully digested and informs the conscious mind and the superconscious mind, which is a state of connecting with divinity or that wholeness and oneness um, in however that manifests to you. And those two diametrically opposed um, states of being, the conscious or the superconscious and subconscious, both tend to inform the um, conscious mind. So when you ask a thought, for instance, where is that, or when you ask the question, where is that thought coming from, there are two possible answers, in my opinion. Either it's subconscious content coming to you or superconscious content coming to you. And, and does one have more value over the other, more credibility or trustworthiness? I'm going to let you answer that question for yourself. Okay. Um, you know, by implication, a lot of people do not trust subconscious content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because a lot of it has to do with uh, early traumas and that sort of thing and belief structures, which are difficult to, to get beyond. And if you're trying to grow uh, fully into a state of self-actualization, the temptation is to negate subconscious content that's what affirmations are all about you're mm-hmm. supposed to be able to uh, you know put in positive ideas of the self-image and which will somehow negate the negative self-image ideas that is a fairly valid approach but my experience is that if you don't really want to exile any part of yourself mm-hmm. in other words if you find yourself having a lot of negative speak I, I personally find myself intensely curious whenever I find myself in a place of negativity. Mm-hmm. I, I want to know exactly where does that come from? How right. do I? How did I come to this idea that, that any of that is true? Is there a seed or an experience that I went through in my life that uh, somehow uh, was so deeply ingrained within me that 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 became a truth if it was true then is it true now there's so many questions that you can ask about that that's a on valuable the other statement. side i'm sorry go ahead mark I, I was going to say on the other side of that is you asked about the um the preference or the value add of the superconscious versus subconscious yeah, well, the superconscious is, for me and my experience of it, a place where I am uh, involved in a lot of clarity. Although it's difficult for me to actually speak about the type of clarity that I'm experiencing. It's uh, psychic knowing, although I don't like grandiose terms like, you know, psychic right. in the you know the new age perspective. Understood. I myself and I'm sufficiently psychic. I can tell things about people in their voice when I'm engaged with them in a place of authenticity. Um, but I can't tell them what's going to happen five years down the line. And my experience of people who purportedly do so is that they're 99% incorrect. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, there's probably a million reasons for that, which do not negate someone's psychic ability. Right. Yeah, but, there's, there's uh, a lot of variables. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and and you know it's a butterfly effect to use mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. the chaos theory term. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, when I'm in touch with my the aspect of me that resides within the superconsciousness, I'm more in touch with my own divinity. I'm more in touch with someone else's divinity. 
I have a greater sense of clarity is the word I keep coming back to. I have a greater sense of peace. I'm not uh, disturbed by things that uh, seem to disturb uh, anyone's state of being in, when living in a dualistic reality. Does that answer your question well enough? It, no, absolutely. Um, it, I, I really um, I, you know, was thinking about when you talked about you have those negative thoughts and we sometimes just want to push them away or find ways, this is bad, I have to get rid of this. Over the last few years, myself, when I'm having them, I've started probing them and trying to explore why am I having these thoughts. Um, we tend to push problems away and want to ignore them and get rid of them, but if we start digging, there's actual healing that happens. And instead of ignoring them and building these walls that shut them out, we can actually make them go away because we've addressed the problem. And and is, yeah, and that's one of the basis of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. is to be able to sit with the reality of the unpleasant things that have happened or that are happening for you now um, because basically uh, human beings, the ego structure specifically, uh, as Freud pointed out, is, is always dealing with the pleasure-pain principle. Mm -hmm. To walk away from pain or to avoid pain and to seek pleasure is the basic function of the ego. Makes makes perfect sense, Mark. So, let's say somebody's doing this work and they're and they're you know going through the meditation and they're practicing. How do they then make the transition from I'm meditating, I'm being mindful, paying attention to my thoughts. Now I want to leave my body and go explore. What's that next step? Well, I've been involved in that thinking for quite a long time. Bob Monroe is the only person that I've ever met that was able to leave his body consciously and be able to clinically prove it by going to another room within a building complex, for instance, mm -hmm. where he's sleeping in, say, room A. Right. He would go to room D and be able to tell you what was going on there. It was very akin to a near-death experience. Most people that have out-of-body experiences, and I, I'm going to have to do a little backstory here with Bob's later thinking about out-of-body experiences, but most people who have out-of-body experiences tend to have them in some sort of sleep state. Mm -hmm. Now, a psychologist or a neurologist would simply say, well, you're having a dream, and it's such a vivid dream that you thought you were out of your body. Makes perfect sense from Occam's razor right. yeah, right. perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. However, that does not necessarily negate the idea that they are having out-of-body experiences. Um, and I'll, I'll get back to your question in just a moment here because I need to go to the sidebar of what Bob's beliefs later in life were. Bob believed that everybody went out of body every time they went into to sleep. Right. And which I have always wondered, you know, how in the world do you know you're absolutely not dreaming? Because I personally have had very few experiences along Bob's line and none of which could be proved clinically by me because they were spontaneous. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question specifically, 
the trick is to get yourself into a state that they refer to as the hypnotic state. Mm -hmm. That is a state between uh, stages two and three sleep, which is uh, predominantly in theta and delta brainwaves, to talk about brainwave consciousness correlates. And it's akin to the experience that we all have, and maybe you can relate to this, you know the experience you have when you're just about, you're kind of, you're going to bed and you're kind of letting your thoughts drift and you're maybe thinking about what you did today and what you're doing tomorrow and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You're just letting your thoughts kind of offload. And then at one point you may reach where you, you might not know if you're awake or dreaming. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is referred to as hypnagogic imagery. Now, Folks who are proficient or purport to be proficient in leaving their bodies consciously take that approach continually. They put their bodies to sleep. They keep their mind awake. In Bob Monroe's system, that was called focus and that was the baseline mm -hmm. of all potential experiences that would happen afterwards. And that's the mind awake, body asleep, basically, state. Yes, right. Okay. Right. And the predominant brainwave patterns within that are theta, delta, and you know, the brain doesn't simply lock into any one particular frequency mm -hmm. band. It's, we're talking about predominance of, of uh, fast to slow wave energy activity. All right. So there's still, you know, some beta brainwave patterns and alpha brainwave patterns that can be seen. They're just very low amplitude by comparison to the beta and delta. Uh, in my case, when I, uh, when I, and I do hypnagogic meditation continually, I, I, I hear myself snore. Mm -hmm. And the first time you hear yourself snore, then you can verify, see, my wife was right all along, you know, and it's a, <laughs> kind of a, a disturbing thought, you know, but, but there it is. You got to deal with the truth, right? Right, right. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you're, you're involved in, in mentating about something and all of a sudden your body is so relaxed that you'll hear yourself snore. You know, your body fell asleep, right? but your mind is still engaged. The separation that occurs ordinarily occurs in the hypnagogic state. So people who are proficient in going out of body tend to target that state first. Mm -hmm. In Bob's case, initially, he had a very real sense of vibratory uh, phenomenon that mm -hmm. he would feel in his body. It was um, almost um, uh, violent at certain points, very mm -hmm. uncomfortable for him. I personally do not have those experiences. Uh, like that, but you know, I don't strive to go out of body. Uh, the few experiences that I did have came out of a lucid dream experience, mm -hmm. which was also very unusual and you know could be written off by neurologists or psychologists and sleep pathologists as being you know nothing more than dreaming. But it was so vivid, so rich, so full that it was light being consciously aware in my physical body with my physical eyes that it was transcendent. Mm -hmm. So and what occurs for me is the word transcendent is uh, applicable and that to put uh, as an umbrella term for lucid dreaming, out-of-body experiences, samadhi experiences, and the list goes on and on. A lot of peaky experiences. Mm -hmm. So again, specifically, how to go out of body. If I could train people to go out of body every time 
um, without a hitch, um, I'm sure I'd be a very popular guy. Right. But the, I, all the years that I spent at the Monroe Institute, nobody can train anybody to go out of body. There are way too many factors. And that is if we consider the out of body experience to be like Bob Monroe's experience, mm-hmm. yeah, which not everybody has. Right. So it's, so it's, I don't know if I can answer your question completely, uh, you know, because it really depends on the individual, but relaxation and focus of mind certainly plays a large part in it. It sounds like, um, you know, for each, like, like you're saying, it, it, it's individual. And I've spoken to several people who are travelers and meditators, and they all have a slightly different technique. It's all very similar. But they, it, yeah. it sounds like it's different for everybody. I know when I was a kid, I, I, I would leave my body spontaneously on occasion. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'd get stuck in that transition between awake and asleep. And I'd have the vibrations and I'd get scared and then I'd shut it down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I know fear is a big inhibitor for us out there. Um, so, sure. you know, your answer makes perfect sense. Um, you know, but which, which brings me to another question. Um, when you're in these altered states of consciousness or you're traveling, you know, people report encountering other beings, other consciousness. Um, do, do you have experience in that? Can you talk on, on those encounters? You mean from a personal level? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to have them continually, and early on in my meditation practice, a lot of them were rather scary right. to use, I, because I don't know what other term. I was scared of them, put it that way. Um Faces that would morph and uh, uh, just just very strange and otherworldly type things. Um, as I got more adept at meditating and as I got more adept at experiencing altered states and being lucid and aware in altered states, I really took the approach, and this, again, we're talking early on, 15, 17, 18, 20 years old, um, I, I really began to take the approach that all of this information was nothing more than my own subconscious imagery trying to make itself aware mm-hmm. to me. It was content. And so, you know, being the person I am, I became very curious about it. Well, what is this about? What is that about? You know, I wonder why I see these faces. I wonder why I run into these people. Um, Eventually, because I became curious about that, several things occurred. One, that I became a lot less afraid because if it was all coming from me, I was in complete control of it. Okay. So that was the approach I was taking. I never really had the, um, the sense that it was outside of me at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Eventually, my imagery that I came in contact with um, began to fade into um, uh, nothingness. It was it was um, a lot less lucid in terms of absolute imagery. I wasn't sure what I was looking at, so I became very curious about that and started to realize that I was sensing things in other ways, which really made me very curious. For instance, I would get uh, the um, the sensations were more vibrational and they were very fine. Mm-hmm. That went on for a time and uh, didn't really yield any fascinating journeys, so to speak. 
until I had a breakthrough where I, I really felt as if I was in contact with something much larger than the I that I know myself to be. Mm-hmm. And it was so much larger than the content that I think I could have created on any subconscious level. And, and for me to be able to actually talk about those experiences with you, it's not that they're too sacred. It's just it's too difficult to put into words. Right. Does that make sense to it you? Makes, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, I've talked about that before, that some of these concepts, we don't have the terminology f- to express them yet. Uh, we may never have that terminology just because of our current reality and perception limitations. But no, I completely understand what you're saying. I can use words like unity, divinity, oneness, an overwhelming sense of love, uh, completeness, and those words would not even touch mm-hmm. the experience as I experienced them. Wow. And they're very real to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are, I, it wasn't something I wanted to experience, at least not on the conscious level. I just right. wasn't really trying to do anything. You know, it was just, I, by that point in, in my experience of, of meditation, I really was just, um, it, was a, it was a part of my daily routine, mm-hmm. you know, right. <laughs> and right. I'm just very curious. I wonder what my, you know, wonder what my subconscious will come up with now. But after that period of very um, subtle types of, um, and again, I can't call it imagery, it was more like vibrationals, it's just a... Uh, a kinesthetic knowing mm-hmm. of certain things. Then if things got more intense. It became more visual. It became more auditory. But in ways that, uh, you know, I, I'd love to be able to say, well, it was just a blinding flash of light, and there I was right. in heaven, you know, in the, in the, you know, touching on the face of God. But I don't know what God is. So, right. you know, I, I don't know what I'm really saying when I say that. You right. Know? Right. All and I and know it's a good point. That, yeah. And, and when you so say it's, it's very subtle, excuse me for a second, but when you say it's, it's very subtle, you know, I, I noted um, in my current writing project, when I first started having, again, for lack of a better word, these psychic experiences or these encounters, in my head when I would say, hey, someday I think it would be cool to have an experience like this, I, I pictured myself going into trance, speaking in tongues, my eyes rolling to the back of my head, and what I've realized that when I have an experience, you could so easily miss it because it, it, it can be something so subtle, a, a vibration that if you're not paying attention to it, you miss it. Or you can easily just dismiss it as, oh, that's just my imagination. But it's when you're able to get that focus back on it, then you can realize, hey, there is some information here. There is an experience to be had here. Absolutely. And the same applies for physical life. Meditation is not just about going into altered states. When you can increase your focus of awareness to be in reality, mm-hmm. you realize that uh, there's a lot of subtleties going on. Yes, a- absolutely. That's I, I used to drive experience. my students crazy with that as a teacher. Hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, they and they and folks who are, you know, a few stepping stones on the path behind you is when you're embodying the role of teacher, tend to aggrandize that and say, that's a, you know, a highly psychic function. I, I wish I could say, you know, I'm in touch with some spirit guide who comes from the fifth dimension right. and is uh, 
speaking to me, you know, uh, as a, through a channel and granting me also uh, bestowing upon me all sorts of grandiose psychic feelings. I don't really think that's what's occurring. Mm-hmm. I think what's occurring is that my consciousness, because I've trained myself, has become more expanded to appreciate subtleties. Mm-hmm. And that's those subtleties are um, make life more accessible, make information more accessible. And that's not to say that I'm not getting information from the fifth dimension right. <laughs> from, a, right. from some enlightened master being. I just don't know it. Is, is the best way I right. can put that. All I can say about my uh, contact with the superconscious is that I'm able to um, be in touch with my own sense of divinity, whatever that truly means. I know that I'm more than my physical body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have a real sense of how that plays out in my world. And that, again, is making, you know, thinking about my own journey right now is, is making a lot of sense. You know, one of the, what I'm realizing is I don't know where this experience is always coming from, but I am aware now, more aware of what's very subtle. And I, I attune it to, it's almost as if my antenna is, is becoming stronger or more in tune to just the frequencies that are around us all the time. And you're starting, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm slowly turning that dial now, instead of just quick changing to the channel I want to see, I'm seeing what's in between, listening to the static and picking up those other broadcasts that are out there in the universe mm-hmm. around me. Yes, and that leads us perhaps as a good segue to the question of the heart question of what is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From the scientific Western mindset perspective, uh, consciousness, the brain is the progenitor of consciousness. Consciousness comes from us. Uh, it comes from the way our brains work, and, and you know, it's still a mystery as to all of the mechanisms that are involved in that process, but there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, if you've ever watched somebody go through the process of dementia and how they see uh, various things just pop up, uh, you know, in, in some form of delusion, um, you know, where they hallucinate, um, it's completely understandable when you see how their prefrontal cortex is you know, um, diminished in some way right. and they are hallucinating and the, the neurons aren't firing quite as well as they once did, etc., etc. On the other hand, you have the Eastern perspective of consciousness, which is more about the consciousness being something, an ocean in which we're all swimming mm-hmm. rather than, you know, creating and perhaps it's both. We don't really know is the answer. So pursuant to, you know, in adding to your point there, when you get this subtle information, you may well be getting it from a dimension and a reality that is this sea in which we're swimming rather than, you know, making, having some, uh, you know, projection coming from your own uh, subconscious. We we just don't know. We don't know. But it's point. really good to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. You know? And of course, a lot of people have, you know, strong knowingnesses about their individual talents. And, you know, there'll be some psychics who are listening to your broadcast and say, well, I get, you know, messages from the spirit world all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not, um, I'm not here to say that they, they're not getting right. those messages. Right. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is I'd be real curious about it. 
Yeah, it's something that, that warrants more exploration. Uh, you know, the, the jury's out for me still trying to understand what it is and where it's coming from. Um, so I'm with you on that one, Mark. I, I want to stay related to this, but, you know, talking about, again, what we may or may not be encountering. Um, just to recap, you know, as a kid, I had those experiences where I, I, I wake up and my body's still asleep, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I'm paralyzed, and now I sense mm-hmm. there's a presence in my room, and it's foreboding, right. and it's scary. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's similar to what you were talking about? It's your subconscious mind trying to get your attention? <clears throat> or for people that experience this regularly and, and are traumatized, do you think that there's something else that's that's contacting them? Well, we really, again, we don't know. We don't know. But this phenomenon goes back to early, the earliest documentation of this phenomenon has to do with somewhere in the Middle Ages right. in the Western culture, anyway, called uh, you know, the succubus or incubus and the succubus. Yeah. Right, right. Where and and I've had sleep paralysis experiences like that myself, but I didn't. I wasn't afraid. Mm-hmm. When by the time I had the experience, what I heard was a choir of angels singing. Mm-hmm. And I was that light that was in the room. Right. <laughs> For me, it wasn't scary at all. But by that point in time, I had already done all the work that, you know, of, of walking through my own innate fears, which were manifesting themselves in my subconscious content or hypnotic content that was somewhat, you know, like Reagan and the Exorcist or something like that. You know? <laughs> uh, it was just horrific things, you know, which would right. sometimes appear in my dreams. So to answer your question, uh, sleep paralysis seems to be a part of the out-of-body phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also have the ability to walk into a house and for the first time and know that there's something there. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, this house may be, you know, 20 years old. It's not a creepy-looking, you know, something out of a horror film. You know, it's, it's all modernized. <laughs> right. But there's something there. Right. And I'll know that, and I'll ask the owner, have you ever had any experiences along these lines? And they'll always confide in me, yes, I have. Had these. Right. Um, so, again, you know, these subtleties are available to us. Um, I think the the key in being available to them is dropping the fear. So if you somehow can get into a stage of sleep paralysis or come out of a dream in sleep paralysis, know that you're in sleep paralysis and that there's a possibility of something really exciting and wonderful that can happen. The chances are a succubus won't be sitting on your chest. It'll right. be more like angels singing to you. Know? you know, and that's a theme that's been coming up, uh, you know, because I've been exploring this for a while. And when I first started, I guess, publicly on this journey, it was there's these negative things out there and they feed off of us. And, you know, oh, my gosh, what do we do? And the more I'm learning is when we can conquer that fear, whether they come from us or somewhere else, it changes. You know, and I'm reminded of a lot of the stuff Tom Candle, Campbell talks about is, is between, you know, your fear and your love. And when you get rid of the fear, the, it, it's almost like a test and the program changes. It's like a virtual reality Absolutely. program that you're in. And, and I've noticed that to be true in, in my encounters as well. Absolutely. And uh, the things that you manifest in your world also change considerably, mm-hmm. my experience. Yeah. Uh, because you're not so ego-involved. 
You're right. You just know that you need to be doing this and you direct your attention, your focus towards it. And there's a, uh, a creative component that goes into that, that or creative energetic component that's played into that. If you harness that energy and, and focus that energy towards, uh, you know, using your conscious mind and at the same time realizing that, uh, this isn't really yours. This is just yours to play with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That uh, the success and of outcome usually is, uh, or the outcomes usually quite successful. So, I think the knowledge is very empowering, and I have to ask the question. Then, um, you know, going back to some of the things Bob Monroe talked about, and you know, in his second book, he talked about the experience he had in the garden, and you know, the louche that was being mm-hmm. generated. Right. Do you have any any comment or thought on how does that play into our current reality? Well, all right. This is one of those, um, you know, me and Bob talks. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so when Bob first uh, introduced the idea of Loosh to me, it was he had already written Far Journeys. I hadn't read it. And he was writing Ultimate Journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gave me the manuscript uh, uh, to to read through for him to see what my impression was, and within the, the manuscript was a mention of this stuff called Bluesh. So I asked him about it, and having not yet read Far Journeys, and uh, he explained to me what it was uh, that you know this sort of psychic vampires out in the acres somewhere that were wrecking havoc in human affairs, and that they keep feed off the negative energy and the fear and emotion and all that. And my response to him, of course, I was maybe, I don't know, 29, 30 years old, was, uh, screw that, man. I'm going to starve those guys. You know, right. <laughs> I'm not going to give them a, a, a thing to you. You know, right. I'm just not interested in playing. Because the idea of uh, any godlike beings somehow manipulating the, the course of human affairs to me, at that point in my growth, was rather anathema. I mean, you know, I, I figured people have been blaming gods for, you know, human affairs forever. And it was time for us to take a little bit more responsibility. So I didn't like the notion at all. And I remember him laughing hysterically <laughs> as I said, you know, I'm just not going to feed those guys. They're on a starvation diet as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm just not going to react to them. Right. Um, not that I don't have, you know, things in my life that that are you know, will tick me off or, or or make me upset or something, but I realize my emotions are completely my my business, how I react to circumstances. Right. And that if I don't like circumstances, I do have the power to change them in many respects. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are plenty of things that I don't have the power to change. Not by myself anyway. Right. And that, that's um, so Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, so in essence, I I didn't really like the notion of loose and uh, had any conversations with people on the social media who were very fixated on that one little bit of Bob's observations. And uh, you know, they want to know, you know what, what my thoughts are on it. And I, I just keep answering in basically the same way. Those guys, as far as I'm concerned, are on a starvation diet. I'm just not interested in feeding. 
You know, that's that's the uh, a great answer, Mark. And it, it's one. It's a question that took me a long time to understand. Uh, and I think you and I spoke a few years ago, um, maybe two years ago, about Lush and about this. I think I was one of those on social media. Because, you know, I was talking about when my father died. It was a horrible, mm-hmm. horrible experience. And that's when yeah. I started sensing, hey, I think there's something else in the room here. What's the connection? And that's when I really started doing research. And then I fell on the Bob's books. So I was spiraling out of control at one point. Like, oh, my gosh, there's these vampires feeding off of us. We're cattle. There's nothing we can do. And I, I pushed through it. I, I faced it, and I kept digging and digging. And I went from a state of total despair to a state mm-hmm. of, wow, here's what we're capable of. Here's what I was not aware of that I can do, that I can learn. So even if these things are out there, I can learn. I said the same thing. I'm going to starve them, and I'm going to better myself and then hopefully help other people that want to do the same exact thing and, and not worry about the fearful stuff because we have so much other power that we can use. Well, Fred, first of all, I want to commend you on your insight. That was a stroke of brilliance on your part. And second of all, what if the light at the end of the tunnel with regards to who it is that's creating turmoil and feeding off negative energy is you? Right. right. I mean, what if? Yeah. You know, what if there's an aspect of yourself that just loves to put itself into all kinds of drama so you can have these emotional reactions so that you'll put the more negative energy out there so that you'll attract more negative things into your life. Right. And the cycle just continues to spiral out of control like uh, Florence just about to hit the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> good good uh, example right there. And, and, and you know, I, I, I thought about that a lot, you know, and, and blaming God and blaming creation and, and, and whatever. You know, it's easy to do that and say, what a horrible being, what a horrible existence, why, why, why? But then you can stop and take a step back and go, well, if there was no conflict, would there be learning? Would there be innovation? Would there be creativity? Would there be a need for any of that? And the answer is not, probably not. If we didn't have some challenge in our life or some need or desire, we wouldn't feel motivated to push and explore and go further. So I was thinking, well, if there is this being that is creating all of this, whether it's us or something else, that may just actually be an act of love by saying, I know you might hate me in the process, but I'm going to give you these experiences where you're going to learn to stand on your own in this uh, mm-hmm. infinite universe that we're in. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of along the lines of God wouldn't give you anything that you couldn't handle. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes sense. I, I've never made that comparison, but that makes a lot of sense that you're saying that right now. And that is a beautiful idea. And I don't know that I uh, subscribe or unsubscribe mm-hmm. to that idea. I was raised in, uh, uh, how do I define this, a high holiday Catholic household, right. meaning we celebrated, you know, high holidays. Right. And I was, uh, you know, sent through religious instruction until about, I look at whatever age I was when I was confirmed, uh, say 10, 12, whatever that was. And then I just didn't bother going anymore because it didn't really resonate with me. Mm-hmm. I bring that up because later on in my life, just to give you a little foundation of my first experiences of what somebody told me God was about, mm-hmm. and they really didn't get into the Bible. Catholics don't. They have little catechism stories right. that are designed to inspire the better angels of your nature and you know, keep you from going to purgatory or hell. 
Right. I actually don't think Catholics go to hell. I think they just go to purgatory. Um, <laughs> so long story longer, I, later on, I started to do uh, comparative religious studies, and I went to the Bible, and I started reading it. And I became very interested in this book called The Book of Job. Are yes. you familiar with it? Oh, very, okay. yep. Yeah, and it's one of the more you know controversial books because it makes God seem like real SOB. Mm-hmm. You know? right. and, and it starts off with this wonderful passage, and I'm having to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me. But basically, there's like this cosmic boardroom mm-hmm. where all the angels and God is, are there, and Satan comes in, and he's doing his thing because he's allowed in the boardroom too, you know? Right. And God turns to him, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, and says, um, so what have you been up to? You know, yeah. <laughs> you know everybody's kind of checking in. <laughs> And Satan replies something to the effect of, you know, just doing what you created me to do, which is go and wreck havoc, you know, to and fro, blah, blah, blah. Right. And uh, God asks him, you know, about the righteousness of humanity and and, uh, and particularly talks about this, this poor bloke, Job, and says, you know, well, what about my servant Job? Isn't he righteous? You know? Satan basically answers him, yeah, he's, he's righteous and all that, but, you know, if he took away his uh, wealth and his camels and his wives and his kids and gave him leprosy, you know, basically he cursed the day you were born, right. you know. So Job goes through all those trials because God basically lets him do that, right. and which, you know, for no good reason whatsoever, you know, if, uh, other than God wouldn't give you anything that you couldn't handle for your own growth. Mm-hmm. Which may, you know, actually be the, the the meat of this story because after it's all said and done, and Job goes through his trials, he basically turns to God and says, you know, well, why did you do this to me? You know, I was a righteous guy. Why did you mess with me? And God goes into this big spiel about, um, you know, I was there at the beginning of time, and who are you to ask me such questions? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in the end, uh, Job basically turns to him and says, yeah, I'm nothing but dust, but uh, I kept my faith throughout it all. And that, interestingly enough, is the very last time that the Hebrew God speaks to a human being directly. From that point in time, the Hebrew God then speaks through the prophet and then through uh, Christ as time goes on and I always wondered about that. I was like, well, was God, was that God embarrassed at that moment that yeah. he had done such a thing? You know, because, or was he content to know that he had helped Job, who was representing humanity, to know that we reach a certain point in our growth and our understanding about life in general and about dualities and to have faith regardless and everything's going to be okay. It's an interesting um, idea because for me, again, the idea of the gods having dominion and affecting human affairs and, uh, you know, wrecking havoc in the name of some grand master plan that we'll never understand Mm -hmm. has a certain resonance and appeal. And on the other hand, I say, you know, I'm going to put you on a starvation diet. Right. Right. (laughs) I don't really know what to do with that information, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what can you do with it other than live your best life? You know, if if we're doomed and these and the gods are wreaking havoc of our lives, well, let's make the best of it. And if they're not there and we're in control of our own lives, well, let's make the best of it. Either way, 
you know, we win. Yeah, and and, and what if it's a combination of two things? You know? mm-hmm. What if you, you get to experience certain things that you were born to do um, for your own soul's growth and learning? And those are destiny points that you have to fulfill. And uh, then there are other experiences that are oriented towards what you've prayed for yourself and free will. Great point, Mark. Mark, we're coming uh, close to the end of our of our time here. Um, before we do, I want to I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the Triad Mind, if you, if you don't mind. If you want to just tell our listeners out there, um, you know, what the program offers and, and and what it is that you do with it. Well, one of the questions that Bob and I used to ponder um, before he passed on was, I mean, we assumed that everybody who came to the Institute would come to a knowledge that they were more than physical matter. Mm-hmm. And the question, I mean, in one way or another, whether they had an out-of-body or a transcendental experience. And the question then became, because Bob was always very fixated on what would happen with the Institute after he passed on, um, was the question became for us was, now that I know that I'm more than my physical body, now what? Mm-hmm. And one of the last things that he created as a response to that was something he called the H plus series, which was a bit sterile, but the idea was to learn to focus the mind on creating the reality that you wanted to create in alignment with your soul's longing purpose and your sense of divinity. Mm-hmm. That question burned with me for a long time, even after he passed on, but we never got to it you know, within the organization. And when I left TMI, I, that question still remained with me because in my own personal experience, um, I had learned the value of learning, of using the mind to focus on creating fulfillment. And uh, through my own studies as time went on uh, since 2001 to the current, I decided to uh, apply that question as the fundamental question for the work that I would continue to do. And that led me to the concept of self-actualization. Now, from a psychological uh, construct, uh, Abraham Maslow and and Adler are pretty much the fathers Mm -hmm. of this concept of self-actualization, which is basically a sense of self-mastery through knowledge of self. And when I say self, I use a capital S there mm-hmm. to, to, to uh, mirror uh, Echo Jung. Um, the, the whole point of the triad mind is essentially to self-actualize. And it's done through using meditation as the vehicle of getting you there. The point being that you're in, in exploration of three levels of mind, which I described before, the conscious, subconscious, and superconscious learning to use that subtle vibrational energy because energy follows consciousness. So whatever you're directing your attention to, you're directing your energy to it. And if you're in touch with the ocean in which we swim, you can use that energy to, um, to you can channel that energy as well to focus on what it is that you're trying to create in life. Basically, self-actualization is the fulfillment of all things. Uh, Maslow talked about it in, in terms of psychological hierarchy of needs, uh, being you know food, water, shelter, that sort of thing at the base level of right. this pyramid, and moving into safety and health and property and uh, acquisitions and 
uh, love, belonging, you know, friendships and uh, sexual intimacy, family and esteem needs and put self-actualization as the capstone of the pyramid, mm-hmm. but never really talked about it in terms that um, went beyond the idea of personal fulfillment. That came a little bit later, I believe, when uh, folks like... Um, uh, uh, wow, gosh, the names are skipping me now. Excuse me, it's been a long day. Um, forget, forget the path or the path of who who created what. But my motivation for doing this was to use meditation as a exploration of the capital S self in all of its various aspects to put you into contact with your divinity and the things which block us from acknowledging our divinity and the divinity of others which reside in the subconscious. So the path of understanding uh, through meditation of these three levels of mind then become that uh, we are fully, that's fully interactive and is working in unison for us to be able to create the reality that we want to see. So that's basically what, what my work has become. Um, in the process of doing that, of course, you have to come into contact with your divinity. So transcendent experiences are part of the process. Mm-hmm. But I don't focus on things like the out-of-body experience necessarily because, in my opinion, that's just one of many potential transcendent experiences. Right. So how do you guide uh, people through this this journey? Are you, I mean, I know you, you have your experience with music and sound. Are you using that type of technology? And I saw, you know, with yeah. the binaural beats or the hemisync or what's yeah, what's your I don't process? use hemi. Yeah, I don't use hemisync. Hemisync belongs to the Monroe, Monroe. Institute, but okay. that, yeah, being that I was so involved in the process of uh, of creating hemisync, I fully understand the brainwave entrainment theory and the ontology of sleep. So basically, I'll put people into the hypnagogic state, which gives them a platform and access to the subconscious and acts as a springboard towards the superconscious. Once they learn to ride the hypnagogic wave, I don't, the triad mind program takes place in three stages. So in stage one, you're introduced to the hypnagogic imagery, you're introduced to the concept of focusing mind, you're introduced to the idea of expanding consciousness. And then you begin the process of the more transcendent work in terms of your connection with the divine and establish uh, four pillars in which will then inform you as to how you should be creating those four pillars being strength, wisdom, compassion, and warmth. Now, is this a, um, a process? I guess everything's done through your program online at your website, triadmind.com. That's your, that's your starting point, correct, if somebody was that's interested in, in pursuing this? That's correct. And there are three levels of membership, uh, you know, one for entry level people who want to just begin a meditation practice and it costs only $5 and you can quit at any time. The uh, stage two is more transcendental meditation techniques. Uh, that's $10 a month. And uh, you, again, you can quit at any time. You have access to some 20 different recordings there. But the Triad Mind program is uh, a six month commitment. And that's three hundred thirty-three dollars if you're interested. Okay, and, and six months is—I is, um, mean, pe- what kind of results are people talking about? Do you have um, what your clients are telling you? They—they they range. Mostly, people are using it to have transcendent experiences and learn to focus their mind. But that has been the thrust of stage one of the program. Um, 
I have my the majority of the people, and I can't talk about their experiences because it it, it belongs to them, and I right. keep experiences confidential when I'm working with somebody. Mm-hmm. But I can say generically, transcendent experiences do play a large part. Uh, people are also very focused, uh, learn uh, very surprised at how they can focus their minds on the task at hand, how they can develop that observer that we were talking about before and that they have a lot more inner strength than they originally believed themselves to have. Those are very common um, reactions to the program. So as we move into stage two, which will be coming out in late October, with any luck, uh, we'll be working more in the realm of lucid dreaming, holding on to the hypnagogic imagery, mm-hmm. and being able to overcome the fear aspects that we've not really paid attention to prior to that. And then in stage three, we'll be learning more about that subtle energy and learning how to direct that energy to achieve the fulfillment you're looking for. And that includes spiritual fulfillment. Right. Mark, that sounds wonderful. That that sounds like uh, an amazing program. And, you know, I encourage anybody that's interested. Again, it's the triadmind.com. And and, uh, just going through your website and and reading even your about me, you know, your about us, your by everything. It's, It's a website worth checking out. Um, and, and I'm really, I'll have the links in our show notes as well. I'm really enjoying your blogs that you're putting up about your time with, uh, with Bob Monroe as well. That's a great read. Uh, I hope to have you back on again and we can delve deep into some other subjects as well. Cause this has been, uh, this has been a great experience for me and I appreciate you taking the time, Mark. Well, next time I'll let you do more of the talking because I really want to hear all about your experiences as well. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me on. I'll be happy to, to indulge any final thoughts for our uh, listeners out there before I let you go. Just stay curious, people. Just stay curious. Great don't advice. let it don't let it weigh you down. It's it's only life, you know. It's only <laughs> thoughts. You can you can get through this. Stay curious. I love it, Mark. Thank you so much, sir. We will be in touch soon. Um, if you want, you can stay on the line for a minute as I go ahead and uh, end this portion of the show, and then uh, you know we can chat for a minute, and then I can let you go if that's okay. That'll be fine. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It was a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Stay curious. It is some great advice, and, and, you know, it was so simple yet so massively complex at that at that statement there, and I absolutely loved uh, how Mark said that, and he kept coming back to it. Because that curiosity, it, you know, I guess, it, you know, I'm a fan of The Matrix. He says it's the question that drives us, and it's that question of what is this? What am I doing? What did I just experience that's what keeps, we're, we're all seekers here. We're all seekers of truth, seekers of knowledge and experience. And when you have that curiosity, you're going to naturally keep asking those questions. And, and we touched on this tonight as well. Even if it scares us, even if it's scary, if we want to know, if we want to understand that fear, where is it coming from? Why am I afraid? There's a lot to be gained and learned from that experience, as, you, as you've heard us discuss on several other shows the history that that Mark has touched uh, in his life and on his journey, uh, I, I just find it so inspiring and and comforting. And I just I could sit and talk to him forever and just listen to what what he has to say. And I know this episode will sit with me for quite some time uh, at some of the things that he said. And I look forward to bringing him back on the show in the future to hear uh, more of his experiences and more of his stories and, and, and more of his talks about what it was like working with, uh, with Bob Monroe as well. So again, be sure to check out his, his website, the triadmind.com. 
sixcentsmedia.com. I'll have the links in the show notes for this episode and at sixcentsmedia.net and in the Seeker newsletter as well. Check your inboxes, my friends. I'm just about out of time. As always, I want to direct you to our social media sites, facebook.com slash the Sixth Sense Media. Join our discussion group where we're always talking about interesting topics, things going on in the world. We look for your opinions. Don't forget, get my free ebook, I Am Human and We Are Not Who We Think We Are. SixthSenseMedia.net slash I Am Human. You will also be signed up for the free weekly Seeker newsletter. Check out Ray Davis and all that he's doing. He is the author of Anunnaki Awakening. He's also working on book two in the series. You can find that book at SixthSenseMedia.net as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, if you're interested in being a guest and sharing your experience, we want to hear from you. Making the paranormal normal and the supernatural natural, I think it's important to share the experiences that we have for those of us out there who may be going through it saying, what is going on in my life? I don't understand what I just went through, what I just saw or felt or experienced. The more we talk about it, the more we share it, the more common place it becomes I think the more we can learn and grow collectively and together instead of being afraid to share these things that are common and normal to just about all of us. I'd say to all of us, actually. So I'm going to go ahead and end the show there, my friends. I'm exhausted. It's been a great show. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I'd love to hear your feedback. So please like, comment, and share as that helps support the show and spread the word. Have a wonderful week. I'll be back next week, as always. I'm Dennis Nappy II. This has been another episode of the Secret Podcast, where small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change. Never stop questioning. Keep an open mind. Thank you.